lost deep in the pages of your Bible are the books that are unmentioned, unheard of, and unread. They are the forgotten books of the Bible. All right, welcome to your Church Friends Podcast. I am Chris. I'm Yerdeh. All right, so we got into Second Peter and thought we could do it all in one episode. Uh, clearly, we were off, so we're just going to jump right back where we left off in the last one and get into the conversation. So if you didn't listen to the other one, go do that because you're jumping into a continuation. It's good stuff. It's listen. all for your good. Yeah, it's all for your good. All right, let's go. Uh, but when you were talking about the glory coming back, I thought about... Um, when Jesus was baptized. Mm. And then again, you had that moment where the cloud... The clouds then, parted and the spirit came down like a dove. Yeah, right. Yeah. And he says, uh, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And it kind of reminded me of Genesis 22 too, where Abraham's taking Isaac off uh, out to be the sacrifice on the Mount Moriah. And God says, now take your son, your only son, whom you love. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just reminded me of the two other things. Like, you know, this, if you think about it, uh, Abraham was called to sacrifice his son here, and God is saying, I'm going to sacrifice my son as well. I think he's, when you read it, that he says, uh, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Yeah. Uh, Jesus' uh, ministry almost takes a deliberate shift and starts leading towards the cross. Uh, after this, he says that, hey, we got to go to Jerusalem, and he speaks about his departure. And as the time approaches for, this is actually Luke 9.51, as the time approaches, so later in that chapter, as the time approaches for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus made it in his mind to set out to Jerusalem. So it just seems like he was moving out that way, that this was like, okay, here we go. Now I know where I'm going or where, where we're headed. Right, and we don't get the words, but it says um, when Moses and Elijah came, they appeared in glory and spoke about his departure. So it was definitely like, a all right now's the time get get moving towards yeah. it yeah it was a pivotal moment in what was going on whereas before he was going and preaching and casting out demons and healing and stuff it was definitely put him on the road to the cross he kept doing those things because immediately following that in luke he went and had a boy with the evil spirit that was seizing him right and so he's still doing the miraculous but definitely the focus on the cross and, and now. you have uh moses and elijah representing the law and the prophets oh yeah we didn't talk about yeah, that Yeah, coming together and like you said encouraging him on what's happening because hey this is this is what both of these things we're talking about this is the direction this is where it was headed this was always plan a not plan b uh moses and elijah are pretty cool uh real quick uh both of them experience mountain moments each of them doesn't have a grave and then both of them are mentioned in the last verse of the old testament uh where it says so this is the last old testament verse from malachi uh, Malachi, it says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the decree and laws I gave him at Horeb for all of Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to go before you. Uh, that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts uh, to the parents, to their children, and the hearts of the children to the parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. I found this stuff interesting. There was two men at the empty tomb. There were two men at Jesus' ascension, and then there's two witnesses in Revelation that sometimes we say are Moses and Elijah. So it does seem like there's always the two there yeah, speaking some... more into it than probably what's alluded. But, you know, it would be a cool idea to say like, hey, the law and the prophets are always surrounding what's going on. 
Yeah, sometimes people want to throw Enoch in on yeah. that in that one on Revelation. Um, just quick note: you said two men don't have a grave. We just learned that we don't know where the grave of Moses was, right? But Michael and the devil fought over where it would be. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So. yeah they were had that great debate, <laughs> the great debate over the body. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, all that stuff is really cool and. When you have Moses coming and God gives him the law, and obviously he was so close to God and all and all of that happening, but so much of the prophecy saying the one that's to come will be a Moses-like person, right? And we have Jesus coming and re-giving the law on the Sermon on the Mount, basically, right? You've heard it said this, but mm-hmm. I'm bringing it to this point. It says, hey, the law and the prophets are never going to go away. Those things are eternal. So you have him linking up with that, but then you have all of the prophets coming and they were pointing towards jesus as well right it says that how's it say in scripture that they longed to see the things that were coming upon the generation and just the opportunity that moses and elijah again these are men and i just think that it's so cool that these two men who were just faithful in different places and different times and different things going on but they were just obedient and how cool that the lawgiver being able to come and meet the messiah and Elijah just like representing the prophets, right? Coming and Jesus definitely is a prophet as he's going about and saying, even hey, the destruction of this temple is going to happen, but I'm going to rebuild it back, even as he's talking about his body. So just all this cool stuff happening with the law and the yeah, prophets and, and the fulfillment the, in Jesus. The lady uh, at Samaria who, like, I could tell you're a prophet. Yeah, right, right, yeah, right. So yeah, yeah, he has both of those. Uh, really, and then getting it, let's get it back to Peter. Yes. Why at this mountain? Why at this moment? Why this? What's the purpose? And again, I think we touched on it, but I just really want to hammer the point in is that the disciples here, as the command from God is to listen to him, uh, the disciples are to maintain their trust and faithfulness, which is going to be difficult once they see the suffering and crucified Messiah um, that they didn't expect. Yeah, they didn't expect. And even as as we were staying in Luke 9 right there, uh, verse 43 through 45, uh, it says, they were astonished at the greatness of God. Everyone was marveling at what Jesus was doing. He said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they didn't understand this statement. It was veiled from them so they couldn't comprehend, and they were afraid to ask him about it. So, yeah, he, again, tells them, hey, here's what's about to happen, and they just they can't get it. Which I think is like a pivotal point in his letter, right, that he's writing this. He brings up this this moment. In combating false teachers, right, saying like, "Hey, this is an experience that I have. Like, you look at this. I, I saw it. I know it. I was there." Um, and these false teachers are talking about all this stuff. They're saying that it's not going to happen. So, yeah, the importance of it to what later follows in his ministry is what gives him the courage to keep pushing forward. Yeah, he he says there in Second Peter one sixteen, for we did not follow cleverly devised fables mm-hmm. when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's so cool. Yeah. I mean, we were reading about it and all this stuff, but to be like, look, I'm not making this up. I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. Yeah. Like these other guys, they're trying to tell you stuff. These other teachers come to, like, I was there. Yeah. Who are you going to believe, me or them? Yeah. I was there on the mountain. Like, come on. So that's him. Let's go back to question uh, two. So that's question four. Uh, Who was Peter in the Gospels? Peter doesn't want Jesus to wash his feet. And then when he does finally submit to that, he says, wash all of me. And Jesus is like, that's not the dirty part. I just need to clean what's dirty from your life. Oh, wait, wait, wait. You skipped over the thing that makes that make sense. Jesus comes and he takes the lowest servant thing to come and clean the feet. And 
Peter saying, no, you can't do that again. Honor, shame, culture. Like, you can't do that. And Jesus says, if you don't let me do this, you can have no part with me. Right. And that's where he goes, oh, wash all of me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just like, if that's what it is, like, make sure that, like, we're all good. Yeah. I just want to clarify the words there because, like, wait, well, washes the feet and then he wants all of them washed. Like, why would that happen? It's like, because otherwise he's saying, look, if you don't let me serve you in this way, you don't have a part. So then Jesus foretells Peter's denial. And then Peter falls asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane. Then Peter cuts off the dude's ear. Yeah. And then Peter denies Jesus. And then... Uh, three times. Before three times. The, before the rooster crows. And then Peter runs to the tomb to discover that it's empty. So this is the accounts of Peter, for the most part, in the gospel Gospels. Um, he was a man who acted on impulse, it seemed like. A man who says the wrong thing at the wrong time. A man who denied Jesus. Uh, but ultimately, what separated him from Judas was that Peter always ran back to Jesus. I'm just laughing because when you're talking about that he ran to the grave, right? Isn't it in John that basically like yeah, yeah. Peter was slower than him? Yeah. Uh, John <laughs> says like, oh, and the one, uh, was it the one whom he loved outran him or something like that? Yeah. He doesn't say that it's John, but John's like alluding to the fact yeah, that it's like, like hey, I, I beat him in the race to the, yeah. to the tomb. But you said it again, and I think that it's so common as we talk about Peter's that he's saying the wrong things at the wrong time. Like, honestly, I don't want to perpetuate that because I really don't think it's true. Like, we want to call him out for saying the wrong thing. It's like, look, person saying that, go walk with Jesus at the time that it's happening. You haven't read the Bible yet. You don't know what it's about yet. Let Jesus tell you this stuff. Jesus was a confusing man a lot of the time. You were seeing stuff that nobody's seen. You only heard about. And again, as the things that you've heard about from these Pharisees that were a bit off from what was actually going to happen, you tried telling me, oh, he said the wrong things at the wrong time. His foot was in his mouth. It's like, man, at least he was brave enough to ask the question that you were probably thinking in your head anyways. Like, I don't think he's doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. I think that he's honestly just like any one of, of us, at least as far as I'm concerned. People like to knock him so much, but it's like, yeah, I've, I sit in life groups. I hear the questions you ask. Yeah, Peter's the one doing it, you know well, what I mean? For me, I find comfort in the fact that he says the wrong things at the wrong times, because then it doesn't make me feel as bad. It's like that comparison Christianity. Yeah. I don't feel as bad about myself when I say the wrong things at the wrong time. It's not really like the wrong thing. It's just like, it's how we oh, talk. It's what we do. Who was I listening to? It was somebody, and they were talking about some famous teacher. Mm-hmm. And the teacher, maybe they were talking about N.T. Wright. I think they were talking about N.T. Wright. And N.T. Wright started off, he says, in every class I say uh, yeah, yeah. 10% of what I'm about to say is wrong. Um, it's up to you to find out yeah, what 10%. Yeah, I don't know. And then he <laughs> says, as I've gone on in my life, I've understood that maybe it's more like 20% of what I'm about to teach is wrong. So uh, I kind of take comfort in that fact of like, as we even go through this, yeah, some of, I don't want to put a number percentage on what we're saying is wrong, um, but we can miss it occasionally. Uh not that I feel like we're better than N.T. Wright, so I don't want to be like, hey, listeners who listen to us, 90% of what we say is wrong, you know, but you know what I'm saying? All right, we need to get some merch for an online store that just says, we did our best. We did our best. <laughs> <laughs> we're trying. <laughs> uh, all right, so uh, let's go to question number three then. So how did Peter go from denying Jesus to leading the church? Well, yeah, when we're looking at that denying Jesus, because up until... He gets taken, as you said, like he pulled out his sword and he's mm-hmm. like, no, nah, I'm, I won't deny you. And Jesus says, yes, you will. But here comes an army, right? Here's a few disciples with Jesus. And here comes the Roman like legion army to come and grab Jesus. And Peter's like, not, 
I got my sword out. Here we go. This dude right here. Like, honestly, how do you cut someone's ear? I don't think you aim for the ear in order to cut an ear. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I think there's a quick head move and yeah. it just happened to catch his ear. And Jesus is like, okay. Peter was going for the kill shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's yeah. what I'm saying. <laughs> Man, how crazy. Jesus just picks up an ear and just plops it back on the guy's head and is like, Peter, no. <laughs> but right? So we're yeah. just like, he's not denying. But then it comes into like, oh, Jesus is heading to the cross. And we have these three denials that happen really because, man, Jesus getting put to the cross. There was this late night court case that's not the way it should have went down and all this stuff. But like as this stuff is happening in the late night, all of a sudden, brave Peter, who's ready to fight off the hordes, he starts denying and he's got those three denials that happen. And then what happens? We have this Peter who is so brave, who is saying, Jesus, you're not going to die. I'm never going to deny you. All this stuff sees his master, his friend, the one that he declared to be the Messiah up on the cross. And then going from the cross to going into the grave. And again, as we just read, they didn't understand when Jesus was saying, hey, I'm going to go to the grave. They don't understand. He's confused. So where does Peter end up? We already said it earlier. He ends up back as a fisherman. Yeah, that's what he does. Yeah. Yeah, he's like, well, what do we do now? I know what I'm good at. I'm going to go back to fishing. Um, And then we have this encounter where uh, in John chapter 21, where Jesus then has returned. He's come back. And they're out fishing again. Him and the boys are out there. And then Jesus says, uh, after a night of of uh, not catching much, or if anything, they hear a voice say, hey, cast your net out over the other side. And when they did it, they pulled in a big old thing. And instantly Peter was like, I, un- I remember this. Because that's how he first met right. Jesus, right? So he jumps in the water. He swims to him. And then uh, they have breakfast together. They pull in the fish that they were eating. And they start having breakfast together. And again, this these divine meetings mm-hmm. revolving around food. You know, like real fellowship almost in a sense revolving around that. But anyways, uh, they I'll read it. It says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, uh, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. Uh, You know that I love you, Jesus said. Feed my lamb. Again, Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Uh, The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him for uh, the third time, uh, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hand and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Uh, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. So you get this guy who uh, was willing to cut off another dude's ear and fight the <laughs> Roman. Willing to cut off his head. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. He wasn't aiming for the ear. He was aiming for the head. Uh, and fight basically all of Rome but gets to a place where this uh, a little girl causes him to deny Jesus. Again, self-preservation at its finest. Right. <laughs> so what does he do? He, he, he needs to be rebuilt. Mm-hmm. He needs to be put back together. And in this, what we see here in John is these three questions. Do you love me? With the task followed behind it. Then do this. If you love me, then do this. And at the end of it, it's the simple follow me. And... Uh, we could read that as just like, oh, yeah, follow me, blah, blah, blah. But I think what he was really saying to Peter, and if you put it kind of together with what John is kind of alluding to in his commentary of all this. Follow me to the cross. Follow me to the cross. And that changes Peter. 
Then you get Peter and Axe, and he's just a different beast. It's almost like uh, we bring it up a lot, Dragon Ball Z or Dragon Ball. He's super saint almost. He's super apostled and like charged up and, and became a different type of person. Right. But in that, before we go to Axe and kind of what happened there, because definitely between this and Axe, because the question is, how did he go from the denier to this great leader of the church? Um, you were saying that this is a rebuilding point, right? So you got three denials. You've got three, hey, do you love me? And it's like, cool, we're rebuilding what happened. But really, what was the cause of the denials? Like, Simon Peter did not want to be killed himself, right? Like, ultimately, it was self-preservation. Like, I don't know, I'm getting away from here, and, and here's what's happening. But what happens at the end of this rebuilding is saying, like, hey, you're not going to deny me anymore. You're going to go to the cross, too. Hmm. You know what I mean? And it's just like, it's it becomes a sure thing that you are going to follow me, and here's the way that you're going to die. And you know what I mean? If there's any more denying, it would be like, no, you're going to dodge that. But really, when I see that the hey, I'm going to tell you that you're also going to be led to the cross. I see that as a, hey, you, you left me once, but that's not how it's going to end yeah. up, even though it will end in your death. Um, and last thing before we kind of move on from this point, people like to make a big deal out of the love words that get used mm -hmm. because Jesus says, hey, do you agape me? And Peter says, I phileo you. And if you know that there's the five words for love and all stuff, and people make a big word, a big deal out of those words and the different meanings and stuff, um, it was actually one of the, the father's episodes on the Lord of Spirits that mm -hmm. they were talking. He likes to go, I'm going to ruin your Sunday school. Yeah. Those five words aren't really that much to pay attention to. Like, yeah, they technically mean different things, but like, you don't got to build up a whole thing out of them. Like you could use them somewhat interchangeably. So I've heard a lot be preached here that like, do you really agape me? And he's like, I feel you. I love I you like, like a brother. Yeah. And it's just like, I don't know. So I'm just saying it's aware that it's out there, but maybe if you're really holding strong on that, pursue the other thing that, is that really what's being said? Yeah. Yeah. Really chase after what's really being said. What is it? Do you love me enough to go to the cross? He's like, yes, I love you. Yeah. Do you love me enough to, to put your life on the line for it and follow me completely? Like to feed my sheep and shepherd my sheep, mm -hmm. right? In the course of all of that stuff. Yeah. Uh, but, which he does do when we look at Acts. Um, he goes from leading the small group of uh, 120 people to then he's like now filled with the Holy Spirit and preaches this amazing message. Right. So that's what happens. We have this and then we have the ascension mm -hmm. and then we have the days until Pentecost that they're just up in that upper room praying yeah. as, as they were told to do. And you just said, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit because that's what happened at Pentecost is that mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit came down like tongues of fire. And that's really where you see the other, as you said, it's super saying, right? Saint. The, yeah, the yeah. fire came down on him yeah, and that's yeah. like, really it's like this was the restoration that he's like all right i'm gonna go into the hyperbolic chamber and then yeah. <laughs> you have at pentecost yeah. he's coming out and he's like ready yeah. to go right um but with that question being what happened i see that those are the the two things that happened that really changed him from the denier into that powerhouse is that he met the resurrected jesus and was restored by him and then he was empowered by yeah. the holy spirit coming down and that those two things are honestly offered to all of us. Mm -hmm. Is it the, the whole thing of the gospel and knowing what happened on the cross and the invitation that we have, Jesus is still alive, is like, hey, come meet the living Jesus and then receive the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So how do you go from denying, a little, uh, denying who Jesus is to a little girl to then uh, battling Simon the sorcerer 
taking, well, not taking down, but confronting Ananias and Sapphira, uh, proclaiming the gospel before the Sanhedrin, right? The more knowledgeable people, uh, I threw up air quotes for some reason, <laughs> <laughs> and we're a podcast, um, to uh, spreading the gospel and 3,000 being witnessed to healing people left and right. I think at some point it says that people were just touching him. It was the, even his shadow of... right. Yeah, that'd be crazy to walk by and your shadow is healing people. healing people to raise people back from the dead. What what changed? Like you said perfectly, the encounter with the resurrected Savior and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And yes, that is there for all of us. And why we go through this question, the, these two questions of who he was in the Gospels to where he is now, is to let us know that a he was an ordinary man who messed up and said some things that Murdoch says weren't wrong, but sometimes were a little outlandish. No, no, like technically they were yeah. wrong. I'm just saying stop picking on them for being wrong Don't because pick we're on so all much. that way. Right. Uh, so he went from that yeah, guy. Not that they're not wrong. Like, yes, factually <laughs> they could be wrong. The denier, all of that to then what he became, it was that encounter. And that's, it, it tells a story that that's available to all of us. That's why we have these questions. That's why we spend the time going through the course of all of these. All right, on to question five. What is the divine nature? I'm just realizing all these questions, I feel like we've just stayed within chapter one of First Peter yeah. as we've been quoting stuff. Well, question three takes us to the rest of the, or the last question takes us to the rest of the. That's true. There is that chunk that is just kind of like, hey, false teachers. Yeah. Um, so divine nature, we're actually going up a bit from where we were with the, the holy mountain, so to speak. But in First Peter, we have... Second Peter. Thank you. I had a tab open with First Peter. No wonder it looks so wrong. <laughs> All right. So in Second Peter 1, we have verse 3 saying, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Through these, he has given us his precious and magnificent promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, now that you have escaped the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. So yeah, there's a divine nature. He talks about it right there. Yeah, plain and simple. Cool. All right, next question. Question six. <laughs> they had the Lord. That'll be an easier question. <laughs> uh, so when I look at it, I kind of keep reading, and I, I read, uh, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to your goodness, knowledge, and to your knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measures, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of Christ Jesus, our Lord. And then at the very tail end of that, for if we do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so I look at uh, the divine nature, and it's basically the way I will structure it is it's our walk with the God. Um, and if our walk with God is goodness, knowledge, self-control, uh, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love, then I feel like we're hitting the right strides. Mm -hmm. Like That's almost like the fruit is being produced in us. We're aiming for those things. Uh, and then Peter says it clearly, you know, that will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then if you do these things, you'll never stumble, right? And it's, so he's saying like, hey, there is a way if, you, if you're living up to these things, if you're doing these things and you're in increasing in them constantly, right? 
almost like if you think of it like a cycle. If once you get through this cycle of increasing in goodness, knowledge, and all the ways to love, then you start all over again at goodness, and you you increase it more and you increase it more. Um, that that will keep you from never stumbling. Meaning, like, hey, there's a course that it puts you on in your walk with God that you start just progressing in that walk, and where you struggle sometimes with your fleshly nature, that diminishes. And you brought up like the circular thing, like, cool, we come around to the beginning. When I read this, I know that it says add this to this, add this to this, add this to this. But rather than that, rather than that circle, I see it more like almost a bar graph lined out. And you see them on different oh, levels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just kind of like, nah, keep pouring in. And mm-hmm. it's kind of like if you're playing a game or whatever and you see your stats, you're just like, oh man, I need to increase that, mm-hmm. right? And you just keep increasing them. And then if you get to the point that kind of levels, like, cool, increase. And you're like, oh, God, I level them out and keep increasing in these things. Like, I don't think that you need to, I mean, it would probably help. You could put them in any order. But if you have, add to your faith, virtue, and virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control. It's like, can you not exercise self-control without, you know, faith and virtue? Maybe, I guess you can make that argument. But I also see a lot of people who aren't Christian, you know, being able to exercise at least some self-control without it. So, and it's fruit of the spirit. And that's what I want to bring it to as well as like, as far as, exercising and really growing in the divine nature of things. These are definitely things that people can have in some measure just around the world and you know how things are. But when you look at what Peter's talking about, this divine nature, it's of a different substance. But then where does the substance come from? It's, it says, through his precious and magnificent promises. If you have people that are outside of the church and, you know, outside of the relationship with God and not filled with spirit, they're going by their own will, trying to like, change themselves from the outside out and the inside in and all those things, right? For the Christian, that's where it says that his divine power has given us everything. Is It's through his promises that we partake in these things. So if God is promising that, hey, here is the pathway for you. Here is your purpose. Here's who you are. Here's who you're created and reborn to be. We're really struggling against that. Mm-hmm. If we're not seeing that progress, you know what I mean? Yeah. To become a Christian is to partake in the divine nature in increasing amounts, right? Through that process, you know, keep circling or keep filling them up or whatever, and brought up the fruit of the spirit, keep growing in these things. Um, but that that's the proper path. Right. You know what I mean? And yeah. if that's the promised path and the proper path and you're actually given it's not like, oh man, I hope that I could ever get these things. God, like, I promised them to you. If they're not there, that's indicating an issue. And that's where Peter calls out the issue is like, hey, if, you, if you're if you lacking in this, you're just nearsighted. You completely forgot why you were forgiven. You completely forgot why you were, you were cleansed. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're not growing in this, like, you don't understand the point of forgiveness, which I'm going to put the asterisk is. Yes, it will be nice when we get to heaven. It will be amazing when we get to heaven. Heaven is heaven. We're in the glory of God. I don't want to discount that. But like partaking in the divine nature, according to Peter, starts here and now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Bonhoeffer. Ooh, Bonhoeffer. In his, The Cost of Discipleship, he said, to be conformed to the image of Christ is not an idea of realizing some kind of similarity with Christ with which we are asked to attain. It is not we who change ourselves into the image of God, rather it is the very image of God, the form of Christ, which seeks to take shape within us. It is Christ 
own form, which seeks to manifest itself in us. Uh, Christ does not cease working in us until he has changed us into Christ's own image. Our goal is to be shaped into the entire form of the incarnate, the crucified, the transfiguring one. He then continues on elsewhere. Uh, Whoever, according to God's promises, seeks to participate in the radiance and the glory of Jesus must first be conformed to the image of the obedient suffering servant of God on the cross. Whoever seeks to bear the transfigured image of Jesus must first have uh, bore the image of the crucified one, uh, defiled in the world. No one is able to recover the lost image of God unless they come to participate in the image of the incarnate and crucified Jesus Christ. So in other words, what he's telling us is that it's costly. Uh, obedient discipleship, it, it costs, and that we rest, we got to recognize that the end of the day discipleship is not it's not about imitation or even the obedience. It's about transforming into Christ in us. Was that that Bonhoeffer book that you got from that bookstore? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I also got one of those, right? Yeah. <laughs> my, my list of books is too high right now. <laughs> Every time you bring, you pull up Bonhoeffer, I'm like, dang, I did get a couple of his books. Like, I really want to read. But that was a good point. And when you're bringing up the, I forget how Bonhoeffer had it, but to be able to basically share with the suffering servant and with the cross and with the suffering is that that's when you get to be partakers of the divine nature you have there i believe the word behind partaker um is the root for koinonia like fellowship and when you're looking at having that fellowship it is that really sharing in the essence of the thing because we are called to have koinonia with christ in his sufferings Mm -hmm. we're also so that we can share in his glory Right, so we're to share in his suffering, so we can share in his glory, and then in that we're sharing in his divine nature, and definitely those all come together, right? You need to pick up your cross, you need to deny yourself, you need to be, you know, perhaps persecuted and put down, and maybe even to the point of death in this thing, but in sharing in those sufferings and sharing in those persecutions, we're also sharing in the glory and in the divine nature that is just the path that we've been given. Yeah, and what I liked about the way Bonhoeffer put it, and it helped me structure this kind of divine nature question in my head, is that really what he what he was saying in that passage was it has nothing to do with our own ability mm-hmm. and what we can or, or what we can do. You know, this isn't about determination. I'm just gonna I'm gonna be more divine. I'm gonna put my head down and just try to aim to live up to those qualities that Peter's mentioning. Uh, so it's nothing done by our own works, but really it's the Holy Spirit empowered yep. in us that yep. leads us to God's glory. It's really uh, it, that work inside of us that allows us to come closer to God and then display the divine nature of goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. Um, so it's really God's work in us that pushes us further towards that. So it's nothing that we can accomplish, uh, but it, at the end of the day, it's what allows us to love our enemies. It's the Holy Spirit that comes in that says, uh, pray for those who want to harm you. In that, you're saying it's the Holy Spirit's work and it's not what we're doing. I really think that the accomplishing of these things is through submission. Mm-hmm. And rather than I need to work to like achieve these things and make sure that they're happening, if any of us think about it, like go back five years ago and think about everything that's happened in the past five years and where you're at now. Did you really make those things happen? And mm-hmm. are you in the place you thought that you'd be in and all of that stuff? It's like, Nah, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but if we can submit to what God is going to allow to come into our lives, knowing that he is allowing these things, and even if it's a trial, he's using those trials, and even if something's being 
meant for evil, he'll turn it around and work it for good. And all these things that we know are found in scripture. And again, these promises. And if we can submit to that, then we'll find that we're growing in these things. Yeah. You know what I mean? Rather than striving to do it ourselves, just like, cool, whatever's going on in my life, I should be increasing in these things. So how am I loving the people around me more? Am I exercising self-control? What's out of my, like, you know, any of these things and like grow in them, but Whatever's going to happen today will be enough for you to get practice in those things today. Right. It's not like you need to force it. God's going to allow the things to come in and, and work the thing in our life. Looking at this thing of partaking in the divine nature, um, I think that within our Protestant evangelical kind of upbringings that I know us and most of our listeners probably have, we'd be looking at, oh, it's the process of sanctification, right? It's becoming more Christ-like. Right. Um, which I think is good. I'm fully on board with that. In studying into this, and as well, I've already brought up the the Lord of Spirits podcast there, Eastern Orthodox, and what I've learned in, in studying into kind of their beliefs and where they see in the scriptures is that one of the great hopes of the gospel is what's called theosis. And theosis really coming from this section of scripture is partaking in the divine nature. It's kind of like sanctification plus yeah. <laughs> you know what it's i mean like disney but disney plus yeah exactly yeah so it's a subscription model <laughs> um for the low low price of 9.99 a month of, can... of suffering and becoming his likeness but <laughs> you can achieve theosis yeah but looking at theosis uh me and you've had a couple of conversations yeah. about it so hopefully we can even flesh it out more because i'm not raised in eastern orthodoxy i'm trying to get more of what like what really is the distinction between sanctification but really where you would have in Genesis, right? Let us make man in our image and in our likeness. I think that some of theosis is like, hey, man is made in God's image, but theosis would be becoming more in his likeness. And again, that process starts here and now. And as you go through what we would call sanctification, but this becoming more Christ-like, this partaking in the divine nature, the dying off of the flesh, or as um, Peter says, getting away from the evil desires of the world and becoming holy, that it's really the Spirit of God coming in and you being united with the Spirit. Um, I have a little definition here. Is it theosis does not mean that we become divine by nature. If we participated in God's essence, the distinction between God and man would be abolished, right? So it's not saying that you become divine in the same way that you become God. But what it does mean, to continue the quote, is that we participate in God's energy described by a number of terms in Scripture, such as glory, life, love, virtue, and power. We are to become like God by his grace and truly his adopted children, but never becoming God by nature. Mm-hmm. So it's really coming into the full likeness of God, but not having the same essence of God like the Trinity, right? Right. When you look at the Trinity, you've got Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and they share in the same essence, even though it's three persons. It's not saying that theosis is becoming divine in that way, but it's definitely becoming divine in the full attributes of God. So there's Athanasius, and I think this is where the Eastern Orthodox really get yeah. their, their yeah. theosis thing from, is his quote of... Uh, Christ was made man that we might be made God. Yeah. Um, so they they take it from that. Uh, but really, when you look at it, uh, as I did some study into it, and again, I'm not going to claim that I'm a theosis scholar at this point or Eastern Orthodox, but trying to understand uh, someone who I would see as a brother in Christ, where they're coming from with a thought process, right? Uh, 
really what I, what I look at it is like uh, what you were saying. It's it's uh, it's we're not becoming God that we are creators, but we are uh, becoming God in His likeness and image and characters and uh, more like kind of what Peter was saying. You know, you're developing these things. You're going to be more like God. You're going to forgive those who hurt you. You're going to love. Uh, even your enemies, you're going to display Christ. So it's really uh, the goal for the Christian is essentially to be different from the world, to be more like God. Um, that might be the simplest way I can understand what they're saying and what putting together what I know. But it, it is a definitely theosis is a definitely deep dive thought study that we're just going to kind of quickly lay some groundwork and say, uh, we pulled the thread. If you want to go more into it, pull the string. Right. And I guess for me, even why I look at it, one, it's interesting mm -hmm. and trying to figure out, okay, how is it different than sanctification? For me, sanctification seems to be more like, hey, you're a human and become like a, we kind of think like, oh, in in the world to come, we will be sinless humans, right? Mm -hmm. But theosis seems to be more like, no, you'll be human with the divine in you. Like you'll be more united to that. Not that, again, you're becoming God, but there will be more of, more of the Christ, like, like, man, Christ was filled with the Spirit, born of the Spirit, and all those things, like, we'll truly have that connection with the Holy Spirit, that it's a bit more than just being, like, hey, I'm just a human, and for me, it's interesting when I bring in concepts, um, is it 1 Corinthians 15 or 2 Corinthians 15, when I'm talking about the resurrection, the resurrection body, I think it's 1 Corinthians 15, right? Might be. Um, but basically, Paul there, in his complicatedness, which Second Peter talks about, hey, some of the stuff that Paul says is pretty complicated, but he talks about, hey, don't you know that like the nature of a seed, once it goes into the ground and it dies, what comes from it is, you know, the tree or the plant or whatever. In the same way, we have these mortal bodies and when they're sown into the ground, what comes up is the immortal. And when I look at that kind of glorified body, so to speak, or as we were looking at the Mount of Transfiguration, it said that Moses and Elijah also had glory, right? Mm -hmm. And is being able to share in whatever that next thing is, but it's like we have the the seal of it now, the promise of it now that we begin to partake in that divine nature. But yeah, what comes next, according to, again, 1 Corinthians 15, hard to understand, snippets of different things, isn't that we'll just be like, oh yeah, I'm a human just like now. It'll be like, no, we're going to partake more in the divine nature than than we see, if that makes sense. Yeah, the way I really look at it uh, to understand is like a relationship with God, right? That that it's how close can I get to having that relationship with God? When I think of someone physically, like um, how close can I be to that person, whether it's physically holding them, like I want them closer, um, or if is it just knowledge about who they are, I want more of who they are in me. That's what makes that relationship go deeper beyond what it just is of I know about a person to I know that person. Um, and really it's like uh, theosis kind of takes it to that extreme step of like, you're going to know God even more and more and more. It's the, really going to be like Christ that, in you. Yeah. Is the like hope that divine glory. nature is like, how, how close can I be to God? Well, it could be in you inside of you. And again, looking at it from that perspective, I don't find a fault in it. Uh, I know some people will, and some people don't really care for the philosophy of it. But looking at it from that perspective of it's how close can I be to God? And if I want to, as uh, we used to seeing back in the day, draw me close to God, mm. it's not that I just want to be in contact where I touch him. I want him to saturate my life. 
then that has to be a submission and allowing the spirit to flush out the gunk and the me so that way I can have that Christ inside of me that then, yeah, like what Peter says, I can display these characteristics and these traits and then the world no longer sees me, they're seeing him. Right. And so kind of regardless of theosis, when we're looking at divine nature, Christ is ultimately the divine nature. And I just like the thought of if I can't see it in Jesus, why would I see it in me? Or if I'm right. not, if it's not going to be part of my life in heaven, why should it be part mm-hmm. of my life now? Whether it's speech or belief or action or, you know, any of these things, thought life. So it's kind of like that's partaking is like really becoming the Christ-like. Um, there are a few scriptures that, again, theosis uses these things, but it's also sanctification. It's just scripture. So allow scripture mm-hmm. to speak. Um, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into this likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So again, as we've been saying, the Spirit working in is transforming us, the ever-increasing glory. We have 1 John 3, 2-3. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Again, that transformation that happens, but hey, we're not what we will be. And then uh, in John 17, come back to this, is Jesus speaking, uh, it says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity. So again, just really coming to that Christ-likeness to the fullness of what Christ had. Yeah, so whether you go to the extent of becoming divine, so to speak, and I just want to make the clarification. I believe it's Mormons say that, no, when we get there, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll yeah. become gods yeah. and we'll each have our own planet to rule over and all that stuff. If you're thinking that theosis sounds like that, it's not. It's like, not. It doesn't do that thing. I, I, I think I want to simplify it and I might oversimplify it. So uh, if you are Eastern Orthodox or you subscribe to theosis or the sanctification from all of the rest of us philosophies and you're like, they're two separate things and they can't be combined. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really just looked at it as one is saying soda and the other one saying pop, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. uh, you know, out, out there in other parts of the, of America, but they're all like, what kind of drink do you want? And I'm like, Oh, what kind of soda you mean pop? And I'm like, sure. It's Coke. It's Pepsi. It's the same thing. You know, like it's essentially and the some same. Some places you go and ask for a Coke and that means oh, any type of soda. Right. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's really the way it kind of made sense in my head. Yeah. Uh, because I, to me, it's like uh, I, I was looking into this a lot and listening to some videos of people explaining it uh, yesterday. But then my natural tendency while I'm watching videos sometimes is like, let's see what's going on in the comment section. And then you kind of drown out the video. Yeah. And you're reading people just debate this. And yeah. I, I saw one person post and it was like, hey, if we're all supposed to be trying to aim for being more like Christ or divine in nature, we're not hitting it right now. This comment section it. ain't it. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I don't I don't want it to be a thing that divides us as right. followers of Christ. I think it should be something that makes us have a conversation more about it, right? Like the more we talk about it, the more we're going to understand where you're coming from, the more we're coming from. And then we'll at the end of the day, we could be like, oh, you, soda means pop and i'm like yeah but pop means soda and we kind of get where we're at on right. there and that's why i wanted to bring it up 
so that we can because there are different denominations that mm -hmm. really hone in on different things. And it's like, oh, are you understanding something there that like my denomination doesn't really bring that up? And in Eastern Orthodox, partaking of the divine nature, theosis, really is a thing. So it's like, oh, that's really interesting. Like, what have you studied out of that? Yeah. Just like I know, I mean, we're here in a Baptist church. Obviously, you know, baptism, big thing. You go over to different places and uh, taking the Eucharist is really, like, you know what I mean? Just different stuff. And it's and the for more those th who don't understand the Eucharist, it is communion. Yes. So it's in any of these things, if we can learn more, and you might end up learning like, oh, so you have that difference, but here's why my denomination does it this way mm -hmm. or why my understanding is this way. And maybe I don't subscribe to that, but at least I can maybe understand why I understand why I understand better. Because mm -hmm. if you know what is not, maybe you can understand what it is. Like N.T. Wright said, 10% of what I'm saying is wrong. Figure it out. <laughs> All right, let's get into question number six. Uh, how does Peter address the day of the Lord? I think when you look at it, he uses a lot of the Old Testament stories, just like Jude does, to remind us that there will be judgment. So that's a lot of chapter two when you're looking at um, his approach to the day of the Lord, uh, before he even gets into like crisis returning, he's like, Hey, let me remind you of God's judgment and what happens. Uh, but he also brings up a lot, what I thought was interesting. And in here, he kind of uses lot to remind us that God loves us and he's determined to rescue us from judgment. So where lot was rescued from the destruction of Sodom and brought out that, uh, God does love us and he's determined to rescue us from that, that even in the midst of literally fire raining down from the sky, God can save those who are righteous, in a sense. Uh, we, where you get Abraham debating with God, like, hey, for 40, and God's like, sure. There's not 40 in Sodom. <laughs> All right, what about 20? And he even gets it down, I think the lowest number is 10, or maybe 5. Yeah, I want to say it's 5, but it could be mistaken. And, and he's like, yeah, bro, there ain't 5 there. But there is a lot, and I know there's a lot, and I know why you've been asking these questions, so I'm going to go rescue Lot and pull him out of that. If it is five, isn't that crazy? Because you have Lot, his wife, and his two daughters, so that's already four. You're yeah. telling me there's not one more. And then his wife turned around, so then it became three. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and then some other stuff then happened. Then it gets crazy. <laughs> but really, that, that you know, his willingness and love is there to determine to rescue us from judgment. That God confronts evil and he must deal with it. That's a lot of really what chapter two is to me, is that there's evil and God's going to deal with it and confront it. You brought up a thing in him bringing up Lot and in the righteous is that when it comes to the day of the Lord, and it's a day of his choosing, whenever he comes to set the thing right, and yeah, there's a lot of evils in the world and we can look at evil people getting away with stuff and all this stuff is like, go read the Proverbs and the Psalms. It'll make you feel better about what will come. And just to be the wise, righteous person Look, if you're on the same path as Peter, which we're all called to pick up the cross and follow, and if it comes to like, hey, for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of our faith and for righteousness, if it leads you to the cross or equivalent, and that's where you're going, then like, that's what God's called you to. However, in the midst of God's judgment, he has the power to protect his people. No matter what the craziness in the world looks like, you know, whether localized or globalized or anything, is that to stay righteous, God can still rescue out from fire raining from heaven. Right. So I think that when looking at the day of the Lord, that just that one example bringing a lot out really brings for me when I look at day of the Lord is cool. God can protect his own. And even when Peter addresses it here, it's like, it's dark, it's gloomy. It's not um, rainbow, sunshine, lollipop. Like the day of the Lord, you would think would be like God's return. This big yeah. glorious thing should be it. It's not. And I think that's the understanding that Peter gets as he then 
you know, the transfiguration, all the events in his life that led him to this understanding that like, hey, it doesn't always look bright before it gets brighter. You know, there's, it's dark and then the light comes through. And that's the the reminder he kind of hits at with some of it that, yeah, that sometimes the day of the Lord is this dark, gloomy moment, but don't be afraid. Don't worry about it. God will rescue you through that. Yeah, I wasn't even thinking of bringing it up in the episode, but now that you brought that out, that it is a dark, gloomy day mm-hmm. that is destruction and is everything. It really makes me feel a way because there are both parts to it, but when there's so much of, and I can mostly only speak to American Christianity because that's what I'm so familiar with, I get the sentiment of Lord come quickly because that's scriptural and we want him to come and he will set things right and everything else. But at a certain point, I think that I see so much of people having more of a desire to see the day come and not having the equivalent desire to see the people saved yeah. And that what it really comes down to is like, cool, if you know that this is a gloomy, dark day of destruction for the sinners, and you really don't have a heart to get out there and save them before the day comes, you're Jonah. Mm-hmm. Like, you know that it's going to be judgment, and like, you're not going out and bringing the message of repentance that even a city like Nineveh could repent. I was like, you're not going out and doing that? You just want God to come with his judgment and all the evil, and you, like... Go read through Revelation and read through some of the other prophecy about how just intensely horrible that day will be for those who stand against God. And if you're not going out with the message that can turn an enemy of God into a child of God, then you're pretty messed up Mm -hmm. if you're just going to really be pushing like, yeah, God, come, 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 come. It's like, man, imagine he came while you were still a sinner. Yeah. (laughs) And I mean, Peter gets into that, but like, even the idea is a lot of times we bring up God returning. I don't want to jump too much into it because we do have a Day of the Lord episode we'll do. Yeah. Uh, but really we do use it as like, get me out of this misery of what this world has or life is difficult or where I'm at in America is just a tough situation. So God, deliver me from that and take me to your glory. But the understanding that Peter has here is like, uh, the heaven will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people you ought to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. The day will bring about the destruction of the hev- of heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So in there, he's like, everything you just said, right? What kind of people are you mm-hmm. if you're just wanting this thing to come? Well, it says speed up, it's coming. Well, how do we speed up, it's coming? By telling people about God, by getting people into this family. Um, that, that's a, a way that I've always looked at it. But in there, in the midst of it, is this destruction, is this heaven will disappear, the elements will be destroyed, meaning like the sun, the moon, the stars, earth, air, fire, and water, all of this stuff would just be destruction. Isaiah says it in uh, 34, 4, all the stars in the sky will be dissolved and the heaven rolled up like a scroll. Uh, The starry host will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. And really the imagery is just like the idea of the sky being peeled back. And God exposes evil and then removes it. Yeah, being peeled back. And I know that 
when you talk about heaven and where God is, a lot of people are like, oh, it's out there. Mm-hmm. I've come to understand more like, no, it's like the spiritual realm. And we're talking realm, dimension, right? If that's more of the thing, because now we're in the multiverse, like <laughs> way of thinking about things. So it's just like that over overlapping layer that we can't Thank see you, that's going on. But one of the things, and this is definitely not a scriptural thing, but just the way I think about it is when you look at all the black matter out there in the universe, how everything is just black. I'm just like, what if that's just the veil that's put over and like we can't see through it? Like, obviously, it's not a curtain and mm-hmm. it's like, oh, something's on the other side, but it's something that exists that we can't see into. I just picture God just like pulling apart the black matter and we see everything that we couldn't see before. Uh, th- uh, in my mind, that's just how I picture how that would go and just like, whoa. That's a great, that's a yeah. crazy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he has a few other things in here, too. Uh, when it comes to the day of the Lord, it's a, a day is like a thousand years. So this is going to take me to my Barnabas thing that I said in the last episode. Yeah, Epistle of Barnabas, 15.4. Give he children what this means. He ended in six days. He means this, that in 6,000 years, the Lord will bring all things to an end. For a day with him signifies a thousand years. And he himself bears witness saying behold the day of the lord shall be as a thousand years therefore children in six days that is in six thousand years everything shall come to an end so there you go and that's why that's not in the bible wait (laughs) or then also when is six thousand years oh i'm not even doing the math but uh basically barnabas is quoting from um or whoever wrote the letter of barnabas is quoting from uh, Second Peter here talking about this this concept that the day of the Lord uh, is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. And really what I what I get from this is that people are finite and sometimes we struggle with understanding God's timing. So don't expect Jesus to return based on our timetable. Like it's not going to happen when we think about it. it. It even Jesus himself referenced it to being a thief, mm-hmm. uh, coming like a thief. And then we, we get in Revelation 3, 3. Uh, remember what you received and heard, hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake, I will come like a thief and you will not know the time I will come. Uh, So again, all of this just kind of understanding that uh, it will be an unexpected event. And the crazy thing about it being unexpected is that for those that are ready, it kind of won't be. Like you won't know the day but Jesus himself said, hey, you guys can look up in the sky and tell what weather's going on and everything else. Like, mm-hmm. pay attention to the signs and the times, and, you know, things are going to be coming. But Jesus also says, like, hey, in, in those times, it'll be like the days of Noah. People are going out and getting married and doing the whole thing. So to those who aren't getting ready, it definitely will be a thief. And I think that a lot of people think, oh, yeah, at, at that time, I'll be able to change my mind, or I'll be able to do this, or I'll be able to do that. And it's like, no... Because that's not the way that societies work, even when societies are crumbling. And I can look, not saying that it's about to happen this week or this year in, in my lifetime, but I can look at what's going on in America with like society crumbling in so many ways around us. And so many people are just going about their life as if like it's not happening. Yeah. It's just like going back to Disney Plus. It's like, yeah, you see that new thing on Disney Plus? It's like, how about did you see the destruction of our society around us? Oh, no, I couldn't put two hours into that this week. <laughs> like... Okay, well, I'm going to be over here getting ready with the Lord, and I don't know what to tell you. I think we get confused sometimes when we look at this term, uh, it will come like a thief in the night, or Mm -hmm. a thief. Um, And really, because when I looked at Revelation right now, it said, but if you do not wake up, like you were saying, it will catch you off guard if you're not paying attention to it, if you're not looking forward to it, or if you're not expecting it. And who is Peter writing to? Well, he's writing to the church. 
and his purpose, it's to refute the false teachers who are saying he's not coming back, he's not returning, don't even expect that. Go live the way you want to, go live how you want to live. And he's like, hey, if you do that, you're not going to know when it's coming and it's going to come like a thief in the night. Like that's the way uh, that it just kind of started making sense in my head right now. Um, I, I, what is the term? Uh, be ready so you don't have to get ready. Yeah. And uh, the the parable Jesus tells about the 10 virgins who like the lamp oil, they didn't have enough. They weren't ready. Right. The bridegroom comes right. and they're going in and the ones that weren't ready are like, hey, spare some of the oil. And the ones that are ready are like, hey, I can't do that because I might not have enough. Maybe you can go get ready by the time that he comes. Mm-hmm. So, and they try and they can't and the door's locked. So really the challenge is stay ready. Um and then the other part of it, and then this is all I've got, uh, is that um, he is patient. So the uh, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Is that he's patient because, like you said earlier, if Jesus came back at a different time, would you have made it? And I'm so thankful that my God is patient that he's willing to to wait to issue his judgment and justice so that more people can embrace repentance and the gospel of Christ, uh, that he loves us so much. It, it, it reminded me of when we were talking about like the Old Testament stuff throughout this series of um, uh, he's slow to anger, like mm-hmm. that being the John 3.16, mm-hmm. and this just kind of hitting the same thing, that like his, his judgment is coming. And man, it's going to be a dark, gloomy day but he's patient because he wants more people with him. Right, and it's the repent while you can. Yeah. If you go back to Jonah, he was able to bring the message to Nineveh, and they repented, and things were put off. And then we go back to, uh, you get to Habakkuk, and nope, here comes destruction, right? His patience had run out by that point. All right, can I take it to one lesson because this is the study episode? Yeah. And I just want to squeeze it in before we, because there's all kinds of other stuff when I'm looking at you know, the false teachings and things that to be able to draw out next week that are really good. But just as far as the study side goes, can I squeeze in one more? Yeah, yeah. All right. So different translations, different things, but Second Peter 2, 4. Uh, I really like the Berean Study Bible, but I wish that they didn't put this in the footnote. I wish that they put it right up front. But it says, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them deep into hell, placing them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. And what I wish that was not the footnote is the word for hell that's actually used is Tartarus. Mm-hmm. And I know we've had lots of discussions probably on the podcast as well as far as like that English word hell. Yeah. Is that Old Testament, you get Sheol. New Testament, you get Hades. You can get Tartarus. You can the grave. Get, uh, yeah, well, that's what Sheol means yeah. is the grave. Or let's see, you get Hades, you get Tartarus, or you get Gehenna. And depending on your translations, maybe that's in a footnote. If it's an old enough translation to <laughs> publishing it might just say hell and you might not get a footnote but when we look at these things that to really understand more on the study side is it sparing the angels when they sin but cast them into tartarus it's not really the same thing as like oh yeah sinners go to hell or to hades uh tartarus really was like a different thing going on and here peter's using a loan word from the greek so with tartarus are you aware of like uh Greek mythology and the Titans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Titans get let loose and all uh-huh. that stuff, and they try and like come up on Mount Olympus, and and that's happening. Well, in Greek mythology, those Titans get bound up and put into Tartarus. Like Tartarus is that holding place for them. 
that we come across that yeah, yeah. familiar yeah. like as far as mythology goes so a lot of the times where scripture we've seen it in the old testament it's still happening in the new testament um maybe they'll quote something from another religion or they'll just reference it but what happens is a lot is that they take the ideas from the cultures around them and correct it so it's not like oh those were titans that are getting put in um to tartarus it's like it's these fallen angels there's a huge thing when you look at those fallen angels again going back to genesis 6 and you've got genesis 6 is you've got those sons of god that stepped out of place that they should be they came down to the women uh to the daughters of men and that whole thing Mm -hmm. we've referenced it um and we'll have a good time looking at it when we go over the forgotten book of enoch yeah first enoch yeah and that really gets into that story um but just some correction there and i just wanted to do that bring that out because it's an interesting study it's a correction to again we're saying greek mythology that was Mm -hmm. the way that they understood what was going on in the heavenly places with these gods with these beings that they you know um what they looked at if you go back into the old testament they were really revering those fallen angels to them they were like the good guys there was the apkalu that came down so it's like the Bible is constantly trying to say, no, Yahweh is good God. These other ones that came against, they were bad. That's why they're locked up in, if you want to call it Tartarus, if you want to call it like, you know, like, let's get the story straight on it. Um, but that's there. But then when you get to these false teachers, same thing, chapter two, but verse 17 says, these men are like springs without water and mist driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. And that's it's not the same Tartarus, right? That's Jesus talking about in that place will be darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it's not good. No, I I like that you brought that up. They're both not good. Yeah. But I don't know for me, clarification, because if if I start calling everything that's different by the same thing, I'll get confused because it's not. I I like that you brought that up too, especially the Tartarus part. Um, What I really liked was that you're, you're, what you're saying is, uh, that a lot of times the Bible mentions these things that other people know through their pagan customs, mm-hmm. uh, where some people would come at it and say, like, well, see, the Bible is saying this, so that means it's just copying from that. Right. Uh, but really the take is the Bible is correcting that. Right. It's saying, no, 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 you have an understanding of this that's totally wrong, uh, but we're going to correct you. So Peter doesn't even address it and say, like, oh, but you remember... Uh, like if I was preaching, I would use like, let's say a, a Marvel illustration, right? A movie or something and compare it to a real life situation. And then like, say like, oh, this is like that, but he's not doing that. He's not saying like, hey, remember the Greeks and their gods when they try to storm Mount Olympus and they got put in this? He's saying, no, let me tell you about the angels that actually did it and how they got put into this right. place. So he's like saying, your your thought processes are wrong. False teachers want to do that to you. They want to kind of same but different you. So that yeah, right. way you're you're confused about it. So yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that does help flush kind of out some of that understanding. Yeah. I, I also just want to bring up because out of everything, and we think we did it in Jude as well, but we can look at, man, human false seizures, human false seizures, but where there is the things to pay attention to, that unseen world that we don't see where there are spiritual beings, there's these angelic beings and stuff going on. Um, let's learn as much as we can through what we're told because uh, I'm not gifted with the ability to see into that realm and know what's happening. But it is good to know that those that went against are in that judgment mm-hmm. and that they're locked up. That's yeah. another important thing is that those angels are locked up. Obviously not that all the all the demons and everything, because Jesus in his day was still casting out demons. And, you know, Genesis 6 was way before that. But 
yeah, learning more about this crazy world that we live in. Yeah. Uh, so for me, to wrap it up, uh, Second Peter was written to warn about these groups of false teachers, these people who are saying that Jesus would not return uh, so that they can live any way they like. Uh, but against this view, Second Peter argues that the day of the Lord is surely coming and that the believer should be living in the light of this truth. Um, so two episodes, even though we said we wouldn't, we did. And we got two episodes out of Second Peter study. Next week, we'll get into more of the practical side of it. But um, good stuff. Good stuff getting into it deeper. It just happened. Yeah. It just happened. I think you'll be happier that we cut this in two uh, because... If not, you're listening to like almost two and a half hours of us talking. So we'll split it up to make it nice for you guys. But I am Chris. I'm Yurduk. We are your church friends. Thanks for listening. Habakkuk. Nahum. Obadiah. Jude. Philemon. Haggai. Amos.